Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Before 2019, if you wanted to enroll your child in the local national school, it's highly likely you'd be asked for a baptismal certificate because nearly 90% of all primary schools in the state are Catholic in ethos. In 2019, the so-called baptism barrier was removed to the satisfaction of lobby groups such as education equality and the dismay of the Catholic Church. But the removal of the barrier didn't take religion out of schools. A state-led process of reconfiguration, and that's the conversion of schools with a religious ethos into schools without, is underway. But progress is painfully slow. And reconfiguration is controversial among both Catholics and those lobbying for reform, and often among the very parents in communities those schools serve. Heated exchanges and heckling at meetings on a divestment programme involving North Dublin schools in Rohini. We're being asked essentially to take a step into the unknown. I've heard scare stories on all sides. I'm Bernice Harrison, and this is In the News, a podcast from the Irish Times. Today, why is religion in schools back on the agenda? And what do parents really want? Carl O'Brien is education editor here at the Irish Times. Why is the baptism barrier in the news now? Well, there's a government plan to deliver hundreds of multi-denominational schools by 2030. Uh, And that's because of the dominance of the Catholic Church in primary education. And and you listed the figures there. So the plan to do this is through what's called a reconfiguration process. So that's basically where a Catholic school will change its uh, its patronage to that of multi-denominational. Now, The issue with that is it has been a very, very slow-moving process. There's only, in a decade, there's only about uh, 20 schools have have transferred their patronage in that way. So what we have now is this new attempt to transfer more schools, and it's already kind of running into trouble. Um, And what kind of trouble? I mean, uh, you say it's a new attempt. Have have rules been changed? Has it been made easier? Is there a carrot? Is there a stick? Yeah, under the old model, there was what was known as divestment, so where the church had to effectively give up its right to the school and it was transferred to a multi-denominational patron. Now, basically, a multi-denominational patron will rent the school from the Catholic Church, but the school will, to all intents and purposes, be a multi-denominational school. Uh, So there is a pilot project at the moment where eight areas across the state, they're trying to identify Catholic schools where a critical mass of parents are happy for it to be transferred uh, to a multi-denominational patron. 
Last week, the first such reconfiguration took place under this pilot scheme. A school in Athlone switched from Catholic to multi-denominational following consultation with the local community who are happy for the change to go ahead. But it hasn't been so easy everywhere. So one example of that is in Rohini in Dublin, where there is a lot of tension in the local community over this. So this last December, um, the surveys were, were being conducted and consultation took place about whether parents were willing to transfer their local school to a multi-denominational patron. And it caused uproar really within the community. There's a lot of tension, a lot of misinformation swirling around, a lot of accusations about uh, as to where all of this is coming from. You're saying that it's the the parent body, if you like, are just looking up and they say, we, we don't want this. Yeah, and, and I think there is a sense among many parents that you, they are happy with their existing school and they don't want things to change. And there's a case of, you know, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. And then among Catholic bishops and the Catholic Education Partnership, which is the voice of Catholic schools and education, uh, they are saying that another obstacle to changing the patronage of schools is the baptism barrier. And as you say, you know, that has been removed and that's removed the ability of schools to prioritise on the basis of religion in their enrolment uh, for Catholic schools, that is. Uh, so they would say that... Um, that means that Catholic parents may lose out on getting a place for their child in their local Catholic school. So they are saying as long as the baptism barrier has been removed, um, this is a real stumbling block to patronage. So once again, this attempt to try and create more choice for parents and more multi-denominational schools is running into serious obstacles. So it's run into the sand already and you're just talking about a tiny pilot programme. And I mean, the programme for government said... 2030, 2030 is coming down the tracks like a steam train. And the programme for government said that they wanted 400 multi-denominational, non-denominational schools by 2030. That's only 400 primary schools. And there's something like uh, 2,750 Catholic primary schools. So 400, it's tiny. And yet, even with this pilot project, it's, it's, it's run into problems. Yeah, it's, it's slow very slow. It's incremental change. And, you know, one of the issues of this is, you know, we, we are obviously dealing with a legacy of an education system whereby the Department of Education has actually very little control over the schools itself. Actually, if you go right back even to the Constitution and how it defines education, it says that the state will provide for education. So the state isn't necessarily providing the education. So it's paying for it. The state's happy to pay. Exactly. So in most cases, as you said, 90% of primary schools are still Catholic-owned and controlled. And um, if you like, to try and change that patronage is turning into a real major obstacle. And, and part, partly it's the fact that the department doesn't have control over these schools. Partly it's the fact that, as you said, religion is a major issue and the baptism barrier is a stumbling block. But also it's the case that I think parents, in many cases, whether you're religious or not, you're often reluctant to see change in your school. So I think a lot of the time these issues are really big among preschool parents of preschool aged children. But once your children are in your local Catholic school, you're kind of quite happy for, for things to keep going as they are. Not everyone is happy with the status quo. Lobby group Education Equality, who previously campaigned for the removal of the baptism barrier, is calling for a more radical approach. 
David Graham, your uh, organisation, Education Equality, a voluntary organisation, I should say, and many others were very, very high profile, I suppose, you know, five, six, seven years ago when you were fighting to get the baptism barrier removed. And the arguments put forward at that time range from the, you know, hardcore ideological saying religion should not be in schools. If you want religious formation, you do that outside schools to the sort of nearly sort of simple demographic thing. Look, we're not a 90% Catholic country. There shouldn't be 90% uh, Catholic primary schools. So given that, why are we not seeing... Uh, this a real flood of divestments. Why are we not seeing, and in fact, Carl mentioned there, that there's a, a school in Rohini where the parents, the bishop said, yep, yeah, no, you can divest. The Department of Education said, oh, yeah, no, no, that's grand. You can become multidenominational. And the parents said, mm, no. And that's not unusual. That's happened elsewhere. So why hasn't there been parents and schools bashing down the door at Marlborough Street? Sure. I suppose, first of all, I would have to kind of set out our stall in terms of the divestment process. We disagree with it fundamentally as a matter of principle. Um, We don't agree that we should be segregating children from four and five years of age along the lines of religion. And that's ultimately where we're headed. If we continue uh, down this road and take it to its logical conclusion, we will end up with a heavily balkanised education system where children are segregated along religious lines from an early age and and we disagree with that as a matter of principle. We've been calling out this divestment process for many years saying that it's going nowhere and it isn't the answer anyway. But to address the question specifically as to why it hasn't delivered more than was promised, I mean, there's a number of reasons for that. Um, First of all, I would say there's there's a clear lack of political commitment um, from government. There's no Ter- there's no uh, target within the term of the current government, for example. Uh, and this is not just the case for the current government. There has never been any interim target set for divestment. The, there's a, a target for 2030, but there's no target before then. Uh, so there's a lack of urgency then also within the Department of Education, um, which has less, left the process to school patrons. Essentially, the, the process in practice is left up, left up to bishops. And it's quite easy for them to kind of publicly say that they support the process. But in reality, at local level, it's quite easy to engineer the process in such a way that uh, it sort of maximises the fear factor and um, shuts various people out of that process. So, um, for instance, um, alternative patrons such as Educate Together or the uh, or the ETBs, the Education and Training Boards, tend not to be invited into schools to address any concerns that parents uh, might have. Um, I don't believe that there's a genuine enthusiasm um, among uh, among the bishops, among school patrons, whatever they may say publicly. Uh, I don't see any evidence that they're genuinely enthusiastic about, about divestment at all. Um, and then also the parents of preschool children are, are shut out of the process as well. So if, if I'm in Rohini or one of these other areas and I have a child of two, three, four years of age that hasn't started school yet, I won't be consulted. It's only the kind of captive audience within existing schools that are consulted. And to the extent that they're consulted at all, very often they are heavily discouraged from from divesting. They're told that this is a bad idea. Do you support it? Okay, so you you used an expression there, maximise fear factor and heavily dis- who is who? What are the fears? And, and ha- how are you saying that these sort of fears are communicated to parents? What, what are the fears? The fears could relate to things like um, that you won't be allowed to say diagrit in Irish. 
you know, which is completely untrue because it contains the word dia, may God be with you in Irish, that that will be, you know, uh, that you will change how you, what you can and can't say. Um, you'll no longer be able to kind of mark Christmas, uh, for instance. Um, there's all sorts of, I mean, they do get somewhat ridiculous, like um, the idea that children might get lost on school trips if they're not wearing uniforms because they can't be so easily identified. I mean, it's, it's almost not worth mentioning some of these kind of fears because they're so ridiculous. But do any parents believe those fears? Uh, in some cases, they probably do. Um, it's it's not it's not hard to kind of make people afraid of change. I think, as a matter of principle, people do get concerned when they're told, "Look, your your school is going to change or might change," um, particularly because this is often structured as a two stage process. It's kind of engineered to maximise fear rather than to allay concerns, and that's a recurring theme we've seen throughout the country in any of these areas where divestment has been attempted. What I mean by that is parents will be asked, do you support divestment? Would you like the school to divest? And parents will say, well, divest to who? And they'll be told, oh, well, don't worry about that now. Just tell us if you want to divest. And then in a second pro- stage of the process, they're being asked essentially to take a step into the unknown. Um, and it's understandable that many parents will prefer to stick with what they know rather than taking that step uh, into the unknown. Um, and the fact that other patrons aren't invited into schools to allay to parents' concerns, again, this accentuates the fear that many parents have. And so it is true in some cases that there is local parental opposition, but as I say, this is happening within a context where the entire process is flawed, both in its conception and in its execution. So we're told now that there is a mood in the Department of Education for reform. Now, you've heard this before. There's always a mood in the Department of Education for reform. We're told that this year there really is. And the divestment programme really has to speed up because we're 2023. It's only seven years to 2030, which is their target date. Um, And obviously there's going to be changes in the curriculum. So in education equality in your organisation, how do you see this year playing out? Well, first of all, I would say that the the government is extremely unlikely to reach its target of 400 schools by 2030. The maths on this are very simple. Last year, 2022, one school divested. One single school. The, The department would need to be divesting 30 schools a year. That's three zero schools this year and every year to reach that target of, of 400 schools by 2030. So they're not going to reach their target in all likelihood. The second thing to say is even if they do reach their target, that would still represent a very small minority of schools. Essentially what the, what the government is proposing, what the Department of Education is proposing, is that the religious control of our education system would decrease from 95% to about 87%. 87% by 2030. So even in the best case scenario, almost nine in 10 schools will remain under religious patronage indefinitely. Um, and so for that reason, as I say, we believe that um, the government should take an entirely different approach. We're not con- confident that the uh, curriculum will be reformed in any kind of sin- significant way either. Um, I believe the NCCA have recently presented a report to the Minister for Education, Norma Foley, suggesting that the allocation um, within the curriculum for religious faith formation should be reduced by 20% from two and a half hours a week to two hours a week. So just um, to put that in context, three hours 
a week is spent on science, history and geography combined. So even with the, under this new curriculum, two hours a week will still be felt spent on religious faith formation. And that doesn't take into account sacramental preparation or prayers or visits to the school by clergy and so on. Um, so what we say at Education Equality is that the approach that should be taken is that religious faith formation, those classes should simply be moved to the end of the school day in all schools under public funding, uh, which is effectively all schools. Uh, and it should be offered to parents on an opt-in basis so that rather than having this idea of choice where parents choose a school depending on what their religious beliefs are, instead irrespective of what school they send their child to, they can choose whether or not their child participates in religious instruction lessons. So that's the view of the secular reformers. But what about the view of the Catholic community? To find out, I talked to Seamus Mulcrony of the Catholic Primary Schools Management Association. First, I asked him about the removal of the baptism barrier back in 2019. At the time this debate was going on, the bishops told the department that they believed that removing the right of Catholic schools to prioritise Catholic children would have the unintended consequences of making divestment more difficult. Uh, And I think that has proved to be the case because anecdotally there is evidence that people are concerned when there is talk of reconfiguration in their area that they will not be guaranteed a place in their local Catholic school. I think people need to understand something. The bishops are fully committed to divestment. They issued a statement two years ago, which was basically a clarion call saying, we are open for business, we want reconfiguration. And I have always said in in private to the department that if policymakers thought of this as a shared problem rather than as a conflict between church and state, we would make a lot more progress a lot more quickly. So why then? Bishops are powerful, no doubt. (laughs) I'm sorry, but uh, they aren't. I I think you need to, to understand the bishops are the patrons. But each school community is a community. And the bishops can't just turn around, wave a magic wand and tell people, your school is now gone. They need to consult with that school community. Um, The bishops are committed to reconfiguration, but they're not committed to forcing people to hand over their schools. Reconfiguration has been painfully slow, like really extraordinarily slow. Because it is an extraordinarily complex business. Each school is a community. You're not talking about handing over a building. You're talking about a building. You're talking about staff. You're talking about the local school community. And while... Reconfiguration is very popular in theory at a national level with everybody. When you get down to the detail of your own local school, it becomes much more complicated. An analogy I would use is that of the housing crisis. Everybody is in favour of houses until it comes to their local area. And it's it's a similar thing. You are dealing with communities. The difficulty is we all know where we want to get to. The problem is the critical path in how you get there. Now, the department and the patrons have got together and put in place a pilot project, which I think is dealing with somewhere six to eight areas. We've had the first school handed over as part of that pilot process. The school community uh, decided that they wanted to move over and the bishop said, fine. So it's also an opportunity to learn 
what are the real barriers and what actually works with communities. You need to bring communities with you. The reality is that the vast majority of parents are actually satisfied with their local Catholic school. Uh, about 79% are either satisfied or very satisfied. But parents have, in a lot of areas, have absolutely no choice. And that's why we want to make sure, everybody wants to make sure that they have a choice. But by the way, most parents, 70% of parents say that they have a choice. The The issue becomes one, there are certain areas in the, the country which don't have choice and we we all would like to see that choice facilitated. The one thing I would say to you, and I don't think people get this, the patrons, i.e. the bishops, are actually very anxious for reconfiguration, want to make it a success, and want to make sure that we get there as quickly as we can. But the figures, I mean, even the goals from the Department of Education are, are very small. 400 schools by 2030. Divestment is going very slowly? No, it's not going very slowly. The uh, new process is relatively recent. It's already delivered one school. What it will also deliver, though, which is even more important, will be a real understanding of what's involved in divestment or in reconfiguration. People always say, oh, yeah, no, this is just a small number of schools. Each school is a community, so how do we engage with the community? What are the issues around panel rights? What are the issues around buildings? What are all of the issues... This is an opportunity, the pilot project is an opportunity to learn and to create for more schools a viable critical path which allows us to do this in a much faster, more efficient and effective manner. I have always believed in any major project, if you get the start of it right and you learn, then, you know, there's, we had an old saying in strategy, think big, start small, scale fast. We all have the shared vision of where we want to get to. We now have a small start, but which can be scaled once we fully understand what's involved and the correct critical path to delivering large-scale reconfiguration. Seamus, you mentioned about an independent facilitator going in and helping schools navigate the process of reconfiguration. The independent facilitator allows there to be a trusted person, so if questions are raised that you can ask those questions and get the right answers. Uh, I understand that most of the independent facilitators are former inspectors uh, and that they would be people who would be respected by both the patrons and the department. Now, we've heard scare stories, for example, that um, in some discussions in schools, parents are led to believe that if the school uh, reconfigures, if it gets another patron body that isn't the Catholic Church, that they won't be able to celebrate Christmas. Like, we've heard these scare stories. Have you heard those? I've heard scare stories on all sides and I can guarantee you when you have a community that is making a major decision and which people feel passionate about, there will be scare stories, but the scare stories are on both sides. And what would be the other side? Like- I prefer not to comment simply because I don't want to add to the confusion or to disagreements that are taking place in negotiations or discussions that are taking place at the moment. I think it, we would all be far better off if campaigners on either side of the debate were to leave school communities alone to get on with making their decisions uh, and if school communities have an issue to ask either the patron or the independent facilitator or the department for clarification. Is there any hope in your view that we will reach the 400 non-denominational schools by 2030? Absolutely. Despite this, this one school only 
divesting last year? This is the first school in a pilot. Mm. It's the first one this year. The pilot itself is relatively, you know, has only been in existence for for a short period. This is the learning. This is the learning pilot. Once we crack this, then it becomes possible to have faster and larger scale divestment. And a last word from education editor Carl O'Brien. I think, Carl, for, you know, for the duration of COVID, if anybody talked about education, it was focused on exams. Now, 2023, I think we're going to be talking about reform. Is, is, that, the, is that going to be the dominant theme this year? I think it is. You know, I think post-COVID, you know, there's been this question of do we just reset back to normal or actually do we look at uh, actually changing systems and curriculum and everything? And, and I think 2023 will be a big year in determining, you know, the fact that we are at a crossroads. So what direction are we going to go in? And if you just take school patronage, you know, what's going to be very interesting is is uh, uh, what number of schools will end up transferring their patronage from this latest attempt to provide more choice for parents. So, so I think we're going to learn a lot this year. That's it for today. This episode of In the News has been produced by Declan Conlon and we'll be back soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>